So guys, we are uh, starting with our Take Root uh, series, and uh, that was the gift that was given out at our birthday last week. Uh, today, we're going to be working through to page 12, that is the end of part one. Um, and so we're going to be dealing with uh, what is really the fundamentals of our Christian faith, and that is firstly, the, the fall of man, and secondly, the introduction of the law. Um, and uh, so those are pretty big, big issues to be dealing with. Um, I'm not going to read every scripture that supports every thought that I have or every, every uh, not, not every thought that I have, but everything we go through. Uh, I think that'll be quite time consuming. Um, but like a true cult leader, I'm going to ask that you trust me and that it is, <laughs> that it is based uh, solely on scripture. Um, and uh, I will throw some scriptures in as well. There are a lot of scriptures in the Take Root booklet as well. Um, so if you want to check up on me on the way, you're most welcome. Uh, if you'd like to know where something is, where a scripture is, uh, or where I get my crazy ideas from, then please let me know, and I will send you the scripture as well. Um, just pop that in the chat as well. Um, I've also had to be quite selective uh, about which sort of Part, this is a small part of the Bible, really, but it is, it's, a big, it's a big deal, obviously. But I've had to be quite selective as to where I stop. I don't know if any of you have played that Minecraft, uh, not Minecraft, the, the Minesweeper game. You know, when you're bored at work, there's Solitaire or there's Minesweeper. Um, and so the Minesweeper game, you sort of click on one little square and it opens up a whole lot of others. And that's really what delving into the Bible does. Um, and so I've had to sort of restrict myself. So we're going to be quite strict as to what we go through today. So we're covering the first two topics, that is the fall of man and the law. And uh, as I said, the crux of our Christian faith, really. I've broken it into the following themes, uh, because these are really the themes that, have be, uh, that are brought up in these two topics. Um, and so just we'll, we'll, this is what we're going to do today, is we're going to go methodically through these themes um, and break them down as we go. So the first theme is, who is God? The second is, who is man? The third is, why man and woman were created? Number four is the condition that ensured that this relationship remained as it was intended. Number five is the sin. We're going to go through these, so you don't have to jot them all down right now, but we'll go through them. The sin and the consequence of not meeting the conditions that were set out, or the condition that was set out. And lastly, the introduction of living according to the law and the dilemma that that presents to us. So the first theme we're going to look at is who is God? And God is introduced in Genesis 1, right in the beginning, as the creator, the all-powerful one. Um, and the source of life. Uh, the universe was spoken into existence by this being. Uh, and so we, we, we're introduced with God's huge power and who he is. And that sort of defines who he is. Later on, however, we are introduced, though, to God the Father. And we'll discuss that just now as well. God is perfect. He is holy. And if you know if you remember the conditions of entering the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle when the Israelites were wandering through the desert, you will know just how holy God is. Uh, and so that also creates a wonderful picture for us 
of who God is. He is absolutely perfect and he is absolutely holy. I love this part of, of what I'm doing today because it's like I'm bragging about my God. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, The rock, it's not Dwayne Johnson, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's just one example. God is also mentioned uh, as light. In him there is no darkness at all. And that's from John, 1 John 1 verse 5. And so he is pure light. He is pure goodness. He is purity itself. And he's described later on as love as well. God is omniscient. It means he knows everything. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And he is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. I know, guys, that this is basic stuff. Uh, and I see even my wife taking notes. And really, for me, this is amazing to be able to go back to the real foundations of our faith. As simple as it, as it seems to a lot of us who have been on the road for a while, um, it really just reinforces and, and uh, just helps us when we're conversing with non-believers, for example, um, or just to reinforce uh, what we believe and put things in perspective. With regards to God's omnipresence, um, it's mentioned in Jeremiah, Psalms, obviously Jonah who tried to escape God uh, and couldn't. Um, it's, it's, it's all over the Bible, uh, God's omnipresence. Isaiah 43 verse 13 says, Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? And so that is God's omnipotence as well mentioned in Isaiah. Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The fact that he knows the hairs, the amount of hairs on each of our heads, I think goes without saying. There's no one on earth that can do that or in creation. Um, and so scripture really leaves us with no interpretation with regards to who God is. God is not God's. He is not a demigod. He is not a created being. Uh, he is the all-powerful one God. I like to call him the true OG, and those who know the term, the original gangster, is not a really good term, but God is the true OG, the original God, and the only God. And so that's just what I like to say. So Genesis starts with the amazing power of God, but as I said earlier, the garden and the relationship that God has with Adam and Eve introduces us to a new side of God, and that is God the Father, uh, God who walks with them in the cool of the day. Um, and so that really introduces us to his, lo his longing or his desire to have uh, a relationship with us, his creation. So number two, that was God. Number two is who is man? And so we read in Genesis when man was created that man firstly is created. <laughs> he was created uh, from the dust and God breathed life into man. He is the top of man's creation. Uh, so we learn that as well. And so God brings him in uh, to be the top, the pinnacle of God's creation. Within man, uh, God plants the potential, the seed for all of mankind. And obviously that means you and I as well. 
man is wonderfully made in God's image. And the booklet that we've got describes man as, be, as mirroring God, not being God, I must make that distinction, but mirroring God. Um, and so just think of some of the attributes that you have, maybe as, as, uh, as faulty as we can be, we, we mirror our father. Um, just things like our love for creating things, uh, our love for things like music and the arts, uh, our love for one another even, and to be close to our family. I like to think that even our sense of humor is something that God, uh, that mirrors God as well. And so humankind was created to be the graphic image of our creator. Like I suppose my kids uh, represent me in a certain way, or they have my eyes or they have whatever. We, we should be able to reflect God our father um, just by people seeing us or interacting with us. John Piper writes this and he, he calls the, the God image within us is the imago Dei, uh, the image of God. And he says, the imago Dei is not a quality possessed by man. It is a condition in which man lives, a condition of confrontation established and maintained by the creator. It is that, that in man which constitutes him as him who God loves. And so it's the thing that makes us special as human beings, really. And we always think we're special, don't we? So we are made from the dust. And I was just thinking about that as well. Um, you know, God, God used the dust um, to create man. And really that also speaks of um, the fact that we were made to be in this environment. We were made from the earth. Uh, and I know that that can open a whole lot of theological debates, but we were really made to be in this environment. And I, I went on a tangent and thought, okay, what if we were made to live on Mars? Uh, what would we look like then? And so the crux of that is not is that we are not our bodies alone. Uh, and God created us spiritually in his own image as well, um, not physically. So number three is why was man created? What is our purpose? And again, Genesis opens up the fact that we were created to govern or to exercise dominion in God's image on behalf of God and with his authority. But more importantly, to live in unity with God, to fellowship with God. God didn't need us, but he wanted us. Uh, and so we were made to be a companion uh, to God. Again, not that he needed it. And so this is why we exist. And Psalm 8 really just captures everything that I've been talking about so far. So I thought it was really worthwhile just reading it. Um, and I'm going to read the whole psalm. It says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands that you put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. All that swim the paths of the seas, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
And so that really puts the relationship between man and God in perspective. But something I'd like to highlight here as well is that particularly in the Psalms, the underlying uh, factor that really uh, grabs me is the fact that we were made to worship as well. Um, and so David here, this, this, this Psalm is really an act of worship. And so the third little prerequisite that I'd like, one of the little uh, add-on that I'd like to add here is that man is also created to worship. Unfortunately, that manifests in a few different uh, ways with mankind. And you know that the story of the Israelites uh, in the desert, you know, where their relationship was with God was not what it should have been, they eventually created something to worship. Um, they would manufacture something. And I'm sure looking in our lives as well at mankind at the moment, uh, what mankind worships, whether it's money or status um, or some sort of hedonistic lifestyle or whatever the case is, um, man was created to worship something, obviously God, but unfortunately we get that wrong sometimes when our relationship with God is not, is not right. So <clears throat> God paints a picture of the ideal man-God relationship, and he paints a picture of his original plan for us mankind. We lived, when I say we, I mean Adam and Eve, mankind, lived, and I like to think of it as this little bubble uh, that we lived in, um, in, the, in, in the Garden of Eden, uh, where, where we lived under the law of life. And we'll see how that changes uh, with the fall as well. I don't know about you, but I, I really wish I could have been a fly on the wall if they had walls uh, or a tree in the Garden of Eden. I would have absolutely, I'd love to see how God walked with them um, and the relationship uh, that he had with them. I think it would really just settle something in our hearts as well about who our father is um, when you see that sort of relationship. But I'm sure we all have a testimony as to how he has been with us as well. So number four is, and John, feel free to jump in anytime, please. <laughs> You're very quiet. <laughs> but uh, I thought John's sermon this morning also just touched on so many of these aspects as well. Um, so, John, if you have any other thoughts, just jump in, brother. Well, no worries. Thanks. Okay. So number four uh, in the themes that I picked up in, in this uh, area of the Bible is the conditions for the relationship. So it's really one condition uh, for the relationship with God, with Adam and Eve. And so the real only boundary was for them not to eat from the tree that God said they shouldn't eat from, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or life and death, or however you want to see it. And so you may ask, why did God put that, that boundary in place? Or why did he put that, that law in place? And really, that goes hand in hand with the concept of free will. God could have created uh, robots, to be honest. He could have created something that just uh, passively or whatever, without thinking, just obeyed him um, and carried on like that. But that is not the source of genuine love or genuine worship or genuine anything really is where either the person is, is forced uh, to love something or someone uh, or they have no option as in it's not in their programming. And so God could easily have done that with mankind, um, but he wanted a genuine relationship with his creation and uh, to, for his creation to be free 
to make the choice to love him or not. And so that's really why the tree was placed uh, in the garden. Wherever there is free choice, however, there is always the potential for evil. And again, that can open a huge <laughs> debate as well. But if you look at, for example, um, the, the fall of Lucifer, uh, the archangel as well, um, mentioned in Isaiah, just how Lucifer was a created being as well, an angel. Um, but even then, being a servant of God and outside of, of our dimension, for example, or whatever, even then Lucifer had free choice. And so we can see that even the angels had free choice. Uh, and we know how that <laughs> turned out and how it's going to turn out for him. Um, but just an example of, of free choice and that that is one of the conditions of having a relationship with God is that we choose to have a relationship with God. And so does the existence of having boundaries mean that God's love for us is conditional? I think that's a big question. And although God's love for us is not conditional, he does place these boundaries for us to protect the relationship that he has with us and that we have with him, as well as protecting us. And if you think of a marriage, for example, there are conditions within our marriage. That doesn't mean we love each other conditionally, but it does mean that in order to have a fruitful, healthy marriage, we need to meet certain conditions. And I'm sure you know what those are. I hope you do. <laughs> Otherwise, the next course will be on marriage. Things like friendships. There are certain things that you would not do in a friendship. Uh, betray your friend or their confidence or whatever else. And so really, th these things are destructive to the nature of the relationship that we're speaking about. Even parent-child relationships as well, which is probably the best way of describing our relationship with God. And so in the Garden of Eden, as I said, I, I imagine this bubble of protection over Adam and Eve and over the garden. And there's the forces of evil and there's the, the law of sin and death outside. And there's this law of life that is sitting in this garden, in this beautiful bubble. Um, and so that's just the image that I get of the garden as well. God remains the same. He is not conditionally in love with us. Uh, he remains the same. And so it is mankind that stepped out of the bubble uh, and stepped out on God. So we are servants to God only because we choose to be. And that can sound arrogant because really we're the created. Um, we're small compared to God, but we choose to be servants of God. Uh, and that means we're free to be servants of God. He doesn't force us to be that. Number five is uh, sin and the introduction of sin. Although the potential was always there, the introduction of sin and the consequences of sin. And so what was Adam and Eve's original sin? And there's a whole debate about this as well. But really, Adam and Eve made a choice to rebel against or disobey God. He made it quite clear. <laughs> it, it wasn't sort of ambiguous whether they should eat that fruit or not. Um, he made it quite clear. And so in unbelief, really, and for me, that's the big sin here. In unbelief, they believed what the serpent said, um, and they believed that they could have the knowledge of good and evil uh, and be in control um, and be as God God was or is. Um, there is also a handing of authority here. And so God puts this beautiful, healthy 
line of authority in place when he created the garden uh, and he created Adam and Eve. And so, as you can imagine, it was God, it was Adam, and it was Eve. And so that's really how it should have been. That was the perfect picture. But in the, in the fall, um, Adam, unfortunately, hands power not only to the serpent to change things and abscond his authority or abscond from his authority, but he also hands power to Eve um, and, and gives her authority over him. And so it's just something to think about as well, is that we have a God-given authority um, in this universe. And are we handing it over uh, to something or someone, perhaps? Um, it also reminds us of Esau handing over his birthright uh, as well, and just the consequence of that. And in fact, God's tone of voice, if you read the story of, of uh, Jacob and Esau, if you read that story, God's tone, and you know a parent has their tone, uh, when, when, when things get real and you, they get the voice, you know, God's tone with Esau is identical to his tone with Adam and Eve when they sinned. Uh, and so just have a look at that. It's quite fascinating. Uh, he goes on, on this really stern talk with Esau. So have a look uh, just as an aside. Unfortunately, it is the failure to repent that was the huge tragedy here um, and shows the deeper heart issue that was behind the fall. Um, and so we went from the law of life in the garden to the law of sin and death in one bite of a fruit. Um, and so that bubble that protected Adam and Eve from the law of sin and death was burst and their lives and our lives were changed uh, forever as well. And so the stipulated consequences of the fall were these, and I'm saying consequences because this is not punishment. God does not punish, but there are consequences to what we do. Uh, and he may, he may uh, admonish or he may correct, but I don't believe that this, what happened in the garden was a punishment for mankind necessarily. Uh, it was, allow, it was, it was a, an, a recognition of the fact that sin and death came in to the garden, and not only the garden, but came into our existence, our bodies, uh, where we died, where sickness was introduced, it was a consequence uh, of the fall. And so these were the consequences. Firstly, separation from God, which is a big one for Adam and Eve, because their whole existence re revolved around him. Relational strife, not only with God, but with one another, and you can see how that developed throughout the rest of Genesis as well. Thirdly, demonic attack, allowing influences to have a foothold in our lives. Number four, shame. And we know that the fig leaf was used. And um, just Kerry had a good observation earlier as well with regards to God clothing Adam and Eve in their shame. And that something already of the law, which we'll talk about later, was introduced where God, God sacrificed certain animals to use their skins to clothe the shame of Adam and Eve. How amazing is that? Uh, that blood had to be shed to clothe their shame as well. I've never thought of that. So it was new for me. And so really we, we look at one of the reasons we're so careful um, as parents is because what, what happened with the fall is that shame was introduced, but with regards to what was seen or what was known we know that what our kids see or know can't be unseen or unknown. 
And so that's where shame came in, really, is that you can't reverse that. And that's why, you know, with things like the internet uh, and things like that as well with our kids, you know that what is seen or, or, or known can't be unseen or known. And there's a lot of work that goes into dealing with things like that as well. The next thing that was a consequence was hardship, toiling the soil, working, um, and really having it hard. And lastly, was physical death, which was not really on the cards for Adam and Eve. Um, how cool was that? Anyway, so a big question, and John, I'd, I'd like you to, I'd like to sort of, I love the word segue, to segue you into this because you dealt with it nicely in your sermon uh, this morning. Just the big question is, were Adam and Eve predestined to fail or to fall? Okay, cool. <laughs> Go for it. Let me let me just turn on. Uh, I'll turn on a webcam as well. There we go. How's that there? Uh, I possibly should have warned you about this, but I know you. No, no worries. No worries at all. Uh, there we go. So he has a crazy thought. I think it's something. Someone asked me about it this week, and uh, they wanted to know. They were talking about the fall and. Was God caught unaware by the fall on one side? Um, and so he, because he's God and he can do all things, he's amazing. So he quickly made a plan and his plan was amazing. And his plan wasn't only amazing for Adam and Eve, but because he was God and he was such a great problem solver, he also saved the day for all mankind. And sure, you know, thank God that he's an ideator and he can come up with a plan on the spot. Now, Again, and I, I did, I, I touched on it this morning. There is a, and, and there's some bigger thoughts, which we will go into. I mean, obviously this Bible school is an intro to systematic theology and getting our foundations in place. But as the year goes on, we'll, we're going to dive in a little bit deeper to systematics and start to look at some really, uh, some of these theological concepts at a really deep level for those who'd like to. I mean, obviously, um, I think what Lance is teaching today and what I'm going to be doing next week and what we're doing in this course is really good for our foundations, for all of us as Christians. Even I've been walking with the Lord for many years now and Cindy and I are sitting here taking notes with what Lance has been talking about. It's so important. But to understand the fall, um, what we so often do is we, um, and the, the big word is we anthropomorphize God. So we, try, we turn God into a human being. And so what we do is we say, well, you know, God is, uh, what would I have done in that situation? Therefore, that's probably what God did, but he just did it better than me. But the problem is there's a presupposition that God looks at the world, is subject to the same things I am. So God not, a, God not only is... Um, uh, subject to the problem that's in front of him, but he's also subject to time and he's subject to gravity and all those kind of things. But here's the thought, right? If you understand, and it's a, it's kind of a big thought. And if, if you follow me for a second with it, time was a created thing, just like we are. And God is uncreated, like Lance said. And so if God is not created, he is not subject to time in any way. And so God doesn't have, uh, the scripture talks about God having no shadow of turning because God has no back. He has no front. He has no face or feet or hands. Those are all very human concepts that we have. And so the reason I'm saying he has no face, he has no back is you can't sneak behind God's back and do something. He is equally present. The Bible describes Jesus as the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So God is equally present 
at every part of creation uh, in every way because he is the fullness of whom who brings life to everything. If, if God was removed from creation for one second, everything would cease to exist. Everything that exists, that does exist, exists at the express will and pleasure of God. So even, and we've said this before, even someone on their way to go and sin is being sustained and given breath by God and being given grace as he seeks to draw them eventually to himself. So there's this, so God is not only equally present in every part of creation, but he's equally present at every moment along the timeline. So if we said this, as um, Revelation teaches, it says, um, John's talking and he says, there um, I saw the land, the lamb that was slain, uh, I think it's Revelation 13, from the foundations of the world. And so before the world was created, Jesus was slain. Now that's weird for us to think because we go, but Jesus only died like what, 2000 something years ago. Again, what we're doing there is we're putting God into a box, into a timeline, which he created. So for God, there is no such thing as yesterday. There's no such thing as tomorrow. He is equally present at every point along the timeline of history as any other point in the timeline of history. Just like as present as you are in the moment right now, God is that present in every person's life, in every crisis, in every war, in every, in every everything. He is equally that present at every point along the timeline. And so this is where our brains begin to bend. And we'll look at this when we look at theology proper um, in, in a couple of months. But what that means all of a sudden, now, it changes our view on what happened at the fall. Because we can't say that everything was fine, then man sinned, then God did this, then man lived under the law, and then, you know, the law was given, we, we said it before, the law was given to us to break, not to keep. So as we broke it, we knew we'd need a savior. God waited and waited and waited and waited. And then when he waited enough, then he sent Jesus. And then eventually, God was equally, God is equally present before the foundations of the world as he is after the foundations of the world as when the entire world is wrapped up. So he He's not at one place. God doesn't scoot around the timeline like Superman because that would be one step up from where we are. Oh, God can time travel. Oh, that's awesome, you know? No, he is as present in the life of Martin Luther back in the day or um, whatever historical person as he is in your life right now. And, and it begins to stretch our thinking a little bit when we realize how eternal and how incredibly powerful God is that he didn't create and then watch it unfold. When God creates, everything is present in the moment all at the same time. And so before the world was created, Jesus was already the slain lamb. God already chose. And I think what's so incredibly difficult, and, and I'll, I'll bounce the ball back to you. Uh, maybe I haven't really helped. Maybe I've just made just stretched the balloon out of shape and now give it back to you. And there's just a big pile of putty on the floor. But the... I think one of the, the biggest things that we need to come to terms with and to grasp as human beings is the ability to say, when it comes to studying theology and studying God, we have to learn these three words. I don't understand. It's incredibly important because what we do, theology is the only study, the study of God is the only study where we are on the little piece of glass looking backwards up the microscope at God who's watching us. 
we cannot put God on a petri dish. Oh, not a petri dish on those little slide things. You know, at school that we used to like stab ourselves in the mouth and or stab our friend and get his blood and put it on there. We not we we can't do that to God, right? Um, what what he said about himself. The Bible teaches that God is unknowable unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. That's how incredibly powerful he is. And so what this does is it gives us this incredible context that when God created, he knew beforehand, even though it wasn't beforehand, that man would sin. Jesus was always the answer. God's plan was always redemption. God's plan was always every concept and every thoughts in scripture is present tense in God's eyes. In our eyes, we sit, we run up and down the timeline. So I don't know if that's just broken everything and hasn't been helpful, Duff, but and I'm not sure if that's what you want to talk about. That's exactly it. Thank you. You're the ideator, bud, so I knew you'd nail that. Thank you. John had that loaded. I could, I could tell. Cool, man. I didn't discuss it with him, though. Thanks, John. Um, so the last theme is the law, um, and uh, that's currently the, the, the dilemma, the issue, uh, really, with mankind at the moment. And so although the disobedience of, of um, Adam and Eve, um, well, basically it changed the relationship between God and man, but not, in, not, not from God's side, really. Uh, he is perfect, and so it distanced us uh, from our side, from God. He does not change. His love for us does not change. And so the effect of the fall was really from our side um, and the shame that it brought on us and the exposure to the law of sin and death as well. Um, and as John said, it didn't take God by surprise. Um, and he had a plan up his sleeve, which we'll discuss in the weeks to come. So really, the law is the introduction of the law of sin and death into the story of man. Um, and the introduction of the concept of atonement, which is something uh, losing its life or being sacrificed or dying on our behalf. Because really, as we saw, the consequences of the fall, one of them was death, uh, as well as the others, which are not great either. And so one of them was death. And so the consequence of sin and our sinful nature and any other sins that we commit uh, was death. And so the concept of atonement was introduced. And so that really was in order to restore the relationship between God and man, albeit in a temporary and very wonky uh, manner as well. But there was a reason for it. We'll go into that. And so... It wasn't that simple for mankind. Um, for many years, mankind, in fact, millennia, mankind wanted, rather than a relationship with God, wanted a rule book. Um, and so God gave it to them. And you know the story, um, really, that God gave them the, the commandments. Uh, if you read the book of Leviticus, it is painstaking um, in its, in its uh, detail of how how we, we're supposed to meet the law in almost every, or in every aspect of our lives as well. And so God said, right, you want rules? They're the rules. Actually, that's what it takes to be like me and to commune with me. I'm an absolutely perfect, uh, holy God. And so that, uh, that's what it requires. And so man did their best, as you know, the story uh, and uh, the story of man really is, is the story of falling short of the law um, that God put in place, uh, or that's always been really, to have a relationship with God. Uh, 
just something that when we were away with the Andersons at one stage, just something that came to me um, was just a very simple little phrase. And that is that actually rule, rule obeying or obeying rules or law uh, is actually quite easy. You've got the list of rules and you can obey them or not, uh, your choice. But love and relationship is hard work. And so mankind uh, didn't want the relationship with God. They wanted uh, to be like God uh, or to be their own gods. So a list of rules sort of separated them, kept them at arm's length from God um, and allowed them in their minds to not invest in the relationship and the hard work of having a relationship with God. They wanted things to do uh, rather than uh, the heart for God. And so God gave them the rules and we can read the rules in the, the books of what are, what are the five books, first books of the Bible called the Torah. Uh, and that is the law of God really. Um, and man tried and tried uh, and tried <laughs> and God was patient and patient and patient. Um, and uh, sacrifices were made, rituals were obeyed, uh, which had sacrifices, had expiry dates on them as well. So you had to do them so often as well. Um, and you had to do certain sacrifices for certain levels of sin, not that there are levels of sin, but it was really, it was really painstaking um, for the Israelites. Um, but also that the, they could keep God at arm's length, really. The dilemma came in, obviously, where um, mankind realized that there was no way they were ever going to meet uh, God's criteria or the bar that, that uh, God is, is on um, with regards to the law. And so really the law is there to highlight that. Uh, and that is how much we need a savior or something to atone once and for all for mankind's fall. No one can match up and all fall short, fall short as the Bible tells us. And so we are helpless and hopeless in our own endeavors uh, by ourselves. And so that's where really in the booklet, that little phrase comes in, in from Acts 2 verse 37, saying, what shall we do? There is a dilemma here. What shall we do? What is there that we can do? Trying to impress God. And even though we know we can, as believers, we look back at the Israelites and say, well, that's silly. Uh, you know, you guys are obeying the law and you could have just repented and sought a relationship with God or whatever. But the bottom line is that we do the same thing uh, a lot of the time. And often we are caught in that trap where our works, uh, we try and earn our salvation or we try and earn favor with God. And so it's really something that, that I believe every believer struggles with. And that is that our salvation and our favor with God uh, is once and for all, it's a done deal. Uh, and the sacrifice has been paid. And I think the more we grapple with that, the better, I suppose, as believers, because the more we come to terms with that, and that is where we find true freedom uh, and God's mission for us as well. Um, and the confidence to go out and do what God calls us to do. And so we need, we were again, we were created to have a healthy dependence on God. And if you go up to someone, you know, out in the streets or wherever, uh, someone who's running a company or some guy with status or whatever, and you say you need, you, you were designed to have a healthy dependence on God, that rubs the human condition up the wrong way. Uh, you, you don't tell anyone that they are dependent on anyone. Um, and so there's this, 
again, the dilemma that we have, um, but that really is the crux of it, is that we have to have a healthy dependence on our Father, and that is where we find our wholeness, our completion as creations. And so that's that. So the punishment of not fulfilling the law is death. And so uh, the little booklet does refer to this. And so the first death really is the state of living. And uh, that means that the life source or the, the purpose um, and the relationship that gives us life has been removed. Uh, there is a separation and it was the first consequence I listed there, the separation from God. And that is, that is tragic uh, that we were created and designed to walk with God daily. Uh, and when that is removed, what do we have actually? And I'm sure as a believer, if I asked you, what would you do without God? I, I get goosebumps thinking about it uh, because I don't know what I, I, I think. I think I'd be long gone uh, a long time ago if it wasn't for God. And so the first death that we notice from the law is the death uh, of separation from God. It is a living death. Uh, so we're, we're walking around like zombies, really, without God, uh, purposeless and without our life source uh, with us and the reason we were created. And so that affects everything. It affects our mind. It affects our spirit. It affects our relationships, as we saw uh, in the fall as well. Uh, strife, it affects our emotions um, and things like depression can creep in and purposelessness and all of that. Um, and it can affect our health with things like sickness as well. And so that is really the first death uh, that we experience as a consequence of not meeting the law. There is also, however, the eternal death, and that is the second death when your body dies um, and you are then uh, condemned or you, are, you are, have to put up with a, a, an eternal separation from God, and that is hell, really. Um, and so that is the second death. For us as believers, though, we have a first life, uh, and that is when we are born again. And so that is the good news, really, that we can... The second death can be replaced, the first death, sorry, can be replaced with a first life. And that is when we go from our sinful state, what we were born into, the, the law of sin and death that we were born into. And when we believe, and at the point of salvation, we enter, we are born again. We enter the first life that uh, a lot of people experience as the first death. And so... I hope I'm making sense there, but non-believers would experience as the first death. They are living in the first death. So we get to live this life on earth as the first life, having purpose, uh, belonging to our Father, having communion with him, being uh, carrying his Holy Spirit with us, hearing him daily, uh, and living in this first life. And what a, what a beautiful thing that we can walk in the garden, as it were, again with our Father. Uh, and that is salvation, uh, really. And obviously then the second life as well. So when our bodies die on this earth, that we have life eternal in heaven with our father um, and we are one with him in communion with him forever. And so really that's the amazing thing that we have as believers and what we should be sharing with everyone around us as well. The last sort of uh, point that I'd like to share is that sin begins in the heart uh, and God is more concerned with our hearts than our actions. And I think everything that I've said so far here and everything we've seen from scripture does illustrate that, is that God actually does not care 
and I'm careful to say this, but does not care about our actions because he cares about the heart behind the action, because the action wouldn't be there without the heart. And so the heart behind the action really in the Garden of Eden uh, was, was there and it created the opportunity or the susceptibility for the fall. Um, things like Cain and Abel, even, uh, the heart behind Cain killing Abel uh, was, was what God was concerned with. Um, and, and obviously that was brought in because of the fall and the strife that we experienced in our relational uh, life as well. And so that's another issue. And God is concerned less about our behavior and more about our hearts. And so lastly, I just want to say that that has illustrated the best uh, with the Sermon on the Mount, really, where, where Jesus stands up and he, he, he says, the law says this, and that is our acts. Uh, the law says, do not covet. But I say, even if you think about it, uh, it's sinning. And that is what God is concerned with. And Jesus was just illustrating God's concern there with our hearts more than our actions, because the heart leads to the actions as well. That is actually uh, a lot more to carry <laughs> than carrying the law itself. Again, uh, that's what the Israelites were trying to avoid, <laughs> really, by saying, give us the rules, give us the rules, we'll do what's expected of us. But really, it was the heart behind things that God was calling us out on. Um, and so that is even, I mean, if you think about it, you know, it's one thing not to sin, uh, in your actions, but not to sin in your mind or your heart, that's quite an ask. And so the need for Jesus was even gr more greatly illustrated in the Sermon on the Mount. And then obviously we know what happened after that.